Lord be with you. Please be seated. Let me pray as, as we begin. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful thing it is that we can come together in church every Sunday, like today, to listen to your word, to mingle with each other, to grow in the love of you and of each other. We pray that you will help us by your spirit to hear and to obey you. And now as I speak, Father, please help me to speak clearly and faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, good evening, everyone. As we begin, there is this story about a maths teacher who gave his class a question to solve. He says this, what do you get by adding one to two to three to four and so on until you reach the figure 100? That is to say, one plus two plus three plus four plus nine on and on and on, plus 96, plus 97, plus 98, plus 99, plus 100 equals to what? And he gave them the whole period to do the sum. One little boy who was sitting in the front of the class passed up his answer within a minute. And the teacher, without even looking at the answer, met the boy stand in the corner with his back to the class to punish him because... He was trying to get out of doing the work. And when the time was up, the teacher collected all the answers. The boys handed up their answers to the, to the teacher, and he went through the answers one by one. And on reaching the boy's answer, he found that it was a correct answer. Amazed, he quickly got the boy to come to him to explain to him how he managed to get the answer in such a short period of time. The boy said, I just added another row of numbers to the first row of numbers, but this time, the other way around. So I added 100 plus 99 plus 98 and so on until I reached the figure 1. And when I add the two rows together, I get 1 plus 100 equals 101. And when I add 2 to 99, I get 101. And when I added 3 to 98, I get 101. And so it goes on until I reach 1 plus, uh, 100 plus 1 is equal to 101. And since 101 occurs 100 times, I get the answer 10,100. And because now I've doubled up the, uh, the sum, I divide that by 2 and I got the answer 50, 50. That is 5,050. Now, I'm sorry if some of you still find this boy's mathematical insight a mystery. And do speak to me later if you want to find out uh, more insight into this. Now, by the way, this might just be a story, a legend, so to speak. But it was accredited that the boy was Daniel Bernoulli, the great mathematician who discovered Bernoulli's principle of hydrodynamics that governs the flow of fluids. You see, friends, what the boy had was an insight into how numbers work that remained a mystery even to his maths teacher who was supposed to be teaching him maths. And today, as we continue with our series on the book of Ephesians, we will see how the Apostle Paul was given the insight into God's mystery that has been given to no one else before him. 
Turn with me to page 1164 of the Church Bible, and you might find it um, a sermon guide in the middle of the bulletin helpful for you if you're one of those who are taking notes. And Paul begins by calling himself a prisoner for Jesus Christ. And we see this a number of times in his letters that were written around this time, uh, it, probably in AD 58. We find this in 2 Timothy and also in the letter to Philemon. At this time, Paul had appealed to the Emperor Nero and was now under house arrest in Rome. But in Paul's mind, he was Christ's prisoner. And it was an enormous privilege to be the prisoner for Christ. For from the moment that Christ called Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul was not free to do what he himself wanted to do. Our friends, that, that reminds us that it is a great way to think about the mystery, ministries that we are called upon to do here as Marys and elsewhere. That it is an enormous privilege to give up our free time, to give up our freedom, so to speak, to be a prisoner for Christ for the sake of his kingdom. And as Paul continues in verse 2, he says that though a majority of his readers might not have known him personally, he, however, would have been known because he was famous for being the previously very fierce persecutor of Jewish converts to Christianity who catches, who caught all these people uh, who convert themselves from Jew, Jewish religion to Christianity and put them in jail and sort of indirectly and directly caused their death but who now, since the road to Damascus, had gone through so much suffering to bring the message of the grace of God to them. In verse 3, Paul had previously, in the first two chapters of Ephesians, spoken about how it has been revealed to him that God has created unity out of the Jewish, out of the diversity of the Jewish and Gentile Christians. But then, friends, he was not the only apostle to whom God has spoken regarding the inclusion of Gentiles as his people. Look in Acts 10. God has revealed to Peter in the vision that what God has made clean, let no one call unclean. Peter was to explain this in Acts 10 verse 28. It says this, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. But here we have a problem because Paul claims to have a deeper insight. And we find this in verses 4 to 5. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. Not made known before. Other generations didn't know. But friends, you and I know that there are many Old, Old Testament passages about the inclusion of Gentiles in God's plan. For example, in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, the promise of God that through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And especially in, in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 2, verse 2, speaking about how in the later days, all the nations will flow towards the house of the Lord. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, speaking about God calling His chosen servant in righteousness, giving Him as a covenant to the people 
and as a light for the nations. And in our Old Testament uh, passage that we read today, in 49 verse 6, still speaking about his servant, who will not only restore the tribes of Israel, but will also, was also given as a light to the nation, so that his salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And still, a generation before this episode was written, Matthew recorded for us the Lord Jesus himself commissioning his disciples to go and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the inclusion of Gentiles, all nations, into God's family, God's plan of salvation. So how can Paul say that he has now been given a deeper insight into this? Now, the tradition, the traditional view that Jews have about Gentiles being included, being drawn to God, was through the Jewish faith, so to speak was being initiated through the Jewish faith in some kind of a ritualistic way, uh, as some kind of a Jewish proselyte or a convert. And we see this even in, in, in the early New Testament church leaders who insisted on circumcision and the food laws for non-Jewish Christians. But the insight given to Paul was that this was no longer the case. The previous community of God's people following the rigid requirements of the law, has been replaced with a new multinational, with a new multicultural, a new multiracial, a new multilingual community of all colors and shapes and sizes, made up of all the families of the earth, forming the universal church, which is the body of Jesus Christ. And Paul explains further in verse 6, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's like a three-layer cake. The first layer being, fellow uh, Gentile Christians are fellow heirs as members of the same body. Paul was to describe this in 1 Corinthians 12, saying that we are individually eyes and hands and feet, and collectively forming the body of Christ. A second layer Gentile converts are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Whatever our origins, we are equal recipients of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And thirdly, through the gospel, and Paul explained this best in Galatians 3, verses 14 to 28, where he explained how, through faith in Christ and his redeeming work, we are already recipients of the Abrahamic promises. So, in summary, what is Paul's insight into the mystery? It is just this. Faith in Jesus reconciles both Jew and Gentile to himself. And being united in Christ, we are one with each other. And one with each other and with Christ, we are reconciled with God. Now, Paul continues. It is God who has assigned this mystery to him. And we find this when he explained that in verses 7 and 8, that through God's grace and in God's power, he is commissioned to preach Jesus and his completed work to primarily the Gentiles. Now here I just want to pick up two uh, simple words. First of all, the word minister in verse 7. The Greek word used here describes one who serves at the table, 
at the back and call of the diners, so to speak. Bring me a pair of chopsticks or a glass of water or a spoon, something like that. Not a minister in the way that we understand it. And Paul follows this up by saying he was the very least of all the saints. Um, recognizing the immense, immense uh, privilege it was for him, so unsuitable, so un, unworthy of, of that uh, great message that he has to carry out to serve the people that God has given him to serve. He was a minister. How I wish our government ministers would think of themselves like this and serve us in the same way. Now, the second word, unsearchable, in verse 8. And I think Paul here is talking about the freely given blessings of riches available through Jesus. It gives us the impression that even when you search for these blessings and riches, you can find them. So they are unsearchable. They are freely given to you. All spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, freedom from sin and condemnation, acceptance into the new community of God, inheritance of the eternal kingdom of God. And Paul follows up. There are two direct results of the gospel message reaching out. Firstly, look at verse 9. Verse 9 tells us, the message of the gospel of God's saving grace in Christ is to bring the light of salvation to a darkened world. And some Christian writers associate this with how the Creator God in Genesis had brought light into the pre-creation darkness and emptiness. I think I can agree with them on this. That Paul's use of light and the Creator God prepares us for God's new creation, the church. That this has always been God's plan, though previous generations did not realize it. And the second impact is found in, in verse 10. And this is not only on the physical world that the gospel message has an impact. He says in verse 10 that, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul shifts from the human world to the realm of angels and spirits, the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. But where does he have to do this? I think Paul wants to emphasize that whether these spirits, these angels, were good or bad, the spiritual powers also cannot ignore, cannot escape from the impact of the unfolding of God's wisdom. For as humanity turns back to God and the church marches on and spreads across the earth, the good angels gaze in awe and in open admiration at the unfolding wisdom of God while the rebellious ones are forced to take note, their time is near. God's wisdom, God's eternal purpose in bringing all things under Jesus is taking place and is being fulfilled through the church. Now Paul continues, part of, the eternal, a part of God's eternal purpose has already been achieved. We find this in verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. For God has sent his son Jesus into the world, and in him, in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to glory, has saved for himself a people of his own, the church. The solution for sin has come from God. 
for only God can deal decisively and conclusively with it. And in verse verse 12, uh, Paul says this, In Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Now back in chapter 2, verse 18, Paul had already told us that we have access in the one Spirit to the Father. Now he emphasizes, it is not only access to the Father, but it is an access that we can make in boldness and confidence and complete assurance in Christ Jesus. Helping us to focus on Jesus as the only way, the only unhindered avenue, if you like, to enter into the presence of the Holy God. Now as we come to the last verse, verse 13, the verse 13 presents us with another problem. Paul says this, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, first of all, the first part of the verse is quite okay. We can quite understand easily Paul talking about his suffering. After all, he began in verse 1 by calling attention to his imprisonment. And if we go back to Acts 27 and 28, we will find uh, the many terrible things described the many terrible dangers that Paul faced on his way to prison in Rome. He was caught in storms at sea. He was without food. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by a a poisonous snake. And even now, writing from Rome, though Paul could have people to visit him, he remained under house arrest for two years before his case was heard. So we know that he has suffered. And Paul encourages all his readers, including us, be strong, don't lose heart, just because you hear of my suffering. But the last bit of verse 13 presents us with a problem. What does he mean, his suffering? Is his readers glory? Is Paul boasting about himself? Now I'm going to go outside of Ephesians to get some help to answer this question. And we find this in 2 Timothy 2 verse 10. Paul said this, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. God has commissioned Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and Paul has suffered terribly. But he tells them, it is a necessary result of obeying God's command. For through his suffering, They and us, the Gentiles, can hear the gospel and be saved. And eternal salvation in Christ, eternal glory by His side, awaits everyone who puts their faith in Him. And so Paul rightly says, His suffering is our glory. So friends, as we come to a close in our passage, we see that the church is central to God's salvation plan. The church is central to God's salvation plan. For some of us, even in this congregation, we might not have made up our minds to accept Jesus and become part of His church. I pray that today's passage will speak to you, will touch to you in a very special way. That the Holy Spirit will call out to you and that you will come to Jesus and be part of Him in His church. But to all others of us, what should the centrality of church be to all of us 
who profess ourselves to be Christians, three things I propose. Number one, we cannot do without the church. Now, friends, I have had the privilege of preparing a number of people for baptism and confirmation. I also have the privilege and the, the joy of preparing a number of couples to take their marriage vows before God and His people in church. And it has been my great joy to see many of them continue to be active worshippers, active contributors, active worker, workers in the church work uh, towards the furtherance of God's kingdom. But it has also been my deep regret to notice that the church seemingly serves to provide some of us with what we want. And once we have got it, you never see us anymore in church. Until the next time, we need something else. And then you see us. Or we see you. That's not the way that we cannot do without church. Because, friends, if we as Christians say we believe in God, then what God thinks about His church should be of the greatest importance to us. God's plan for His church is to bring light to a darkened world, to make known to the spiritual rulers and the powers the magnificence of His plan for all eternity to place all things at the foot of Jesus, whose body is the church. It is His new creation, the church, so don't treat it with disrespect and even contempt. That's the first thing. Now, secondly, we cannot be divisive in the church. For those of us who have been faithfully been part of our church community, it is so great to be part of you and that you are part of me and we are part of each other. And as members of the same family united in Christ, we must all act to, as one to make our church a true witness in care and in the wider field. Especially this evening, I will urge you to come for the combined service where our unity across the 11 or 12 congregations will be showcased in the Klang Valley. Now, while we speak about not being divisive, that doesn't mean that we should accept wrong or substandard principles and practices, especially if they are non-biblical. However, when we meet these things, we should handle all these community issues with love and patience and understanding, never being hostile or bullying others, never belittling others' efforts, but rather helping each other so that the work of the church can go forth and bear fruit in the world. Thirdly, we must participate in the church's march to glory. Being part of God's eternal plan means that we must participate in the church's march throughout the world. This does not mean having to pull up our roots and moving to Afghanistan, for example, to be an evangelist there. It might well be. I do know of a doctor whose parents are dentists in Melbourne who gave up his practice and moved to Afghanistan as an evangelist there. May, you have, may well be for some of us here. But I'm thinking more in the local context that, to be, that we must be part of the vision to make disciples of Christ as we respond to His grace and love for us. Participating in the many teaching and community efforts and keeping an eye open 
for our many evangelistic and training programs to reach out to others and also for ourselves as well. Identifying, inviting family and friends and colleagues to come and benefit from them. Our friends, being practicing Christians, we cannot just be a passive one. We must be an active, proactive one, bringing others to the gospel message. Our friends, remember that God's eternal plan is tied to the church, so be worthy members of it. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. Please guide and help us in your spirit to live as worthy members of your church, reminding us always that individually and collectively we are part of your eternal plan for the salvation of the world in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.